Hello and welcome to the first ever The Garden podcast. I'm Chris Young, the editor of The Garden, and I'm delighted to welcome you to what I hope is a great way that you'll find out behind the scenes actions of The Garden magazine, the articles we've done and some of the top tips and advice that our authors and photographers can give us. The aims of the podcast are to really give a behind-the-scenes exclusive look at what's coming up in each issue, who's written what, what they've learned from it, and the thing for me is to hear different people's voices. We'll be delving really deep into the topics that people are really interested in. We pride ourselves on making timely and relevant material that gardeners need now, and so to be able to have a podcast that can explain that and explore some of the issues we're raising in the magazine is really exciting. The Garden Magazine office is on the fourth floor of a building in Peterborough. The office is a pretty normal open plan office, but the one thing that I'm really proud of what we've got is loads of plants. And so we've really been trying to bring as many plants into the office to green up our space. It not only makes it look better, but it makes you feel better by having plants. And we've got a load of cacti or succulents, things that are pretty tough growing, but they work well in this pretty light open office. But they really just bring a sense of, A, what the RHS is meant to be doing, but also it just makes it look so much nicer and a nicer place to be in. Right now, I'm actually finishing the very final reads of the October issue. This means that it's going to bed to the printers in the next couple of days. So we're just checking the images, checking the writing, and then it could be out for members uh, at the end of the month. As ever in the Garden magazine, we're always trying to give a range of content of articles for lots of different gardeners. And that's whether you're a first-time gardener, you might want some of Helen Dillon, one of our columnists' recommendations about some real good-doing plants, some real stalwart plants that you just can't go wrong with. Uh, One of the ones she mentions is Itea illicifolia, which is a lovely shrub with drooping um, flowers. And it's something you don't often see that often, but she's reminding us about why it's a, a really good plant to have. We always have a great deal of practical advice about gardening and plant activities that you need to do now. And in our advice section, which is written with our colleagues down in Wisley in the advisory service, uh, we've got a whole range of different things of what to do in terms of planting bulbs for autumn flowering bulbs or bulbs for next season, some design ideas about planting plants underneath maybe a bench. And we're also highlighting the importance of hedgehogs One of the challenging pieces we've got this month is by Leoline Dertz, where she's written in her column all about street trees and the importance of them. But also she's exposing us to a new idea about looking at the health and well-being of trees, and especially old trees. Um, We are faced in so many towns and cities with street trees disappearing, and we know they offer loads of benefit, not only aesthetically, but also for trapping pollution, for reducing rainwater runoff. They've got loads of benefits, and yet they're disappearing. And Leah really reminds us of their importance, uh, but also the fact that we've got to have new ways of looking at them. It isn't just about cutting street trees down. It's about working with them, making sure they're healthy and well, and that they can remain part of our urban landscape for many years to come. It's a really good piece. For those who've been reading The Garden for many years will know the name Roy Lancaster. He's an absolute plant hero of so many people and rightly so and Roy visits uh, every few months a different nursery around the UK we're really really supportive of independent plant nurseries both in the garden magazine and across all of the work of the RHS and Roy went to visit one of our stalwart showgoers pheasant acre plants in Wales and he went to see them and they grow a whole range of plants but especially gladioli and dahlias and Roy writes up about his visit there in only the way the Roy can 
can. If you've ever heard Roy speak or if you've met him uh, and then you read his words, it just sounds like Roy. The plant trials the RHS does are absolutely vital to our work and vital to the information we put in the magazine. And plant trials have been happening for years and years. And as a result of the trial, different plants are awarded what's called an Award of Garden Merit, or we call them an AGM. And every issue, we focus on some different AGMs. And this month, John David, who is our head of a horticultural taxonomy at Wisley and a great Narayani enthusiast, has written a brilliant piece all about the latest Award of Garden Merits for Narayanis. One of the highlights of this issue has got to be an article by Fergus Garrett from Great Dixter, that amazing garden in East Sussex. And funnily enough, he's not actually really writing about the garden, but he's writing more about the biodiversity and wildlife that lives there. It's a fascinating piece. Earlier this week, I caught up with Fergus on the phone to ask him what makes him an environmentally conscious gardener. So, Fergus, you've written this absolutely fascinating article for us in the latest issue, which is really celebrating Dixter, but also the biodiversity and wildlife therein. Um, tell me about your personal journey in how you've become increasingly aware of, of the benefits of wildlife in the garden. Well, for so many years, I wasn't aware at all. I mean, I used to look out for uh, the lovely butterflies we used to get in the garden and sometimes go out and... and you know, Christo and I used to count them on an Escalonia bifida and see if we could get over a hundred at any one time. We weren't sure whether we were counting the same one moving around the bush or not. You know, so is that? And of course, <laughs> uh, as I said in the article, we we um uh, we've had great crested newts have great crested newts in the sunk garden pond, which we celebrated every time we saw them, and and occasionally we see a grass snake and and see a, a woodpecker here and here and there, and and they were the things that we sort of um ticked off our list and that and that was it but it never went any deeper than than that and and so as you know with dexter we carried on with our flamboyant displays and um but then you know there was a part of you that that looked at the meadows and thought well this this the feeling that you get from the meadows almost goes deeper you know it takes you back in time and there's something mysterious about it and it was on, wasn't just the, the the community of wildflowers in there but it was the chirping of the crickets and the the life that was in there and then suddenly you'd cut the meadows you put all the hay on the back of a tractor you take the hay off to be composted and the whole floor of the tractor would be moving with insects. You know, it'd be little oh, sort wow. of bugs and wow. grubs and spiders and so on. And so you thought, oh, hold on a minute, there's a, there's, you know, there's a, there's a whole sort of uh, microcosm life of life in, there, in yeah. there that we're not aware of. But then it, it didn't go any further than, um, than, than, than that. Um, but I am married to an ecologist, and and she uh, works with exotic animals as well as uh, native animals. So you know, I love the way. My wife Amanda always stopped to look at a, you know, uh, a little bee or a little fly or a spider and and even wood lice. You know, she'd say, "Oh, that's a pileated wood lice, and that's interesting and all of that." So I love. I was fascinated by by all, all of that, and and then just we met a man. Christo and I met a man who was interested in swifts, and he came to talk to us about putting swift boxes up at Dexter. 
and he was just so mesmerising, really was, and and um, we sort of fell in love with him really, and the way he was just so passionate about his subject, in the same way that we are passionate about our our subject, and that sort of sort of opened up a little door, and and um, well, and was was Christo interested in this? Yes, he was. He, he was uh, and very knowledgeable as well, but he never really um, wrote about it extensively. But he 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 knew his his birds and his bees and his bugs and. And um, and he was one of his favourite places was uh, the, the ancient woodlands just just on our property and he'd walk through there and look at the wildflowers. But he was he was a great birder as well, so he's very much interested in it. But I think that word biodiversity never really featured, and then the integrated mm. management never sort of came into his into into his mind. But he was genuinely he, he gardened for wildlife. Um, he, he championed wildlife. On his gun, even though he sprayed and he wasn't organic and poo-pooed all of that, um, he 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 loved the different crickets and loved seeing the odd snake here and there. And in fact, when we were writing the Meadows book, um, and we wanted to do some research in on the continent in Hungary, he he made sure that my wife Amanda came with us so that she could really. Um, get us to look at all the insects that were in that in that complex vegetation as as well and 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 so you know little by little this world opened up to me and 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 I remember you know I remember a, a man coming from Tunbridge and he was interested in some sort of bee and I didn't really know much about this bee and he he sat this this man sat on the circle of steps at Dexter and watched a dandelion for about six hours. And after six <laughs> hours he'd found the bee and it was some sort of rare solitary bee that hadn't been that hadn't been um recorded down this way for so many years and he was just so joyous with it and I thought, Hold on a minute, there's more to Dexter than than just the butterflies and all the rare orchids and adder's tongue ferns and those sort of things. And really we should um look at a few more things. My secretary Sarah, that at that time she um, she was in conservation, but but with primates, and so she understood though that, that that you need to really do studies on these things, baseline studies to get the real picture. And so I wrote a note for her to say, you know, find me a bee man, find me a spider man, find me a a, a beetle man, find me a fly man. Made this sort of list for her to do, and she said it was the most wonderful thing for her to come into the office and see a note like that. And of course she got on the phone. And, and, and got in touch with all these societies to see if they would come and survey Dixter. The interesting thing was that a lot of these people didn't want to come to Dixter because they thought, well, it's a garden and we've been round enough gardens and they looked at gardens as, as relatively sterile spaces, you see. And so it was difficult to get them to come. And, and the British Arachnological Society, they didn't want to come first of all. So I offered them the Yeoman's Hall to have their annual general meeting in and offered them free <laughs> sandwiches and, 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 and free drink. And said, you don't need to survey the garden. But of course, you know, for their lunchtime or afternoon break, they went out and surveyed and they went straight to the compost heaps and found loads of spiders there. And then they looked under the paving stone. Yeah, and the stone walls and things. And, yeah. and, and it was just, it was just alive with stuff and so they were just so positive about the place which really spurred me on to 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 look deeper and 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 you know in a way you catch the bug don't you really it's just it's just and it just went on from from there 
tell me how, how it must have been so difficult after uh, Christopher passed away. But how did you then sort of refocus and, and look at the future of the garden? And was that within with biodiversity and wildlife in mind? Uh, not not inish, initially, but you know, I wanted to take this garden and the place forward in in the same way that Christo would have done as as a young young person. I also wanted to protect it um, for future generations. And and because the estate had been managed in this sort of similar way for all those years, I thought, well, it must be rich with um, with wildlife. And so, although we know the sort of species, plant species that we got, we didn't really know about all the insects and those the, those sort of things. And 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 so, if we find all these wonderful things on the estate, that will be protective of it in years to come, without without making it a site of special scientific interest or anything like that. So so it was, and and of course. It was difficult to do this when Christo was alive because he didn't want lots of people sort of trampling about and 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 so on. But um, I took the opportunity once he once he was gone to to go ahead and do this. In my editorial in this issue, Fergus, I, I link obviously your article and the findings to the work that the RHS did in 2015. And in 2015, we published a huge amount of research about called Plants for Bugs. And it was all about recognising that actually having a mixed, broad um, range of plants in a garden that helps extend the season is actually something that really supports a healthy, wildlife-friendly and biodiverse garden. Do you feel innately, from your horticultural point of view and from somebody managing the garden, that it's that range of plant material that really helps in actually home for a range of wildlife? Yes, absolutely. And I think it was great, the work that the RHS did. And that sort of leads on to um, the, the, the work that, that we're doing. But we, we, we feel that the, the exotic nectar and pollen resources really add to the, to the native ones that are in the country. Because, you know, Britain has got limited vegetation. Mm. So just, mm. just, you know, just under 3,000 species, I, I believe, or some, something like that. So the garden, garden can really add to this and widen the seasons as, as as well and so the sort of planting that we do where uh, whether it be um, planting for a late display or, a, or an early display or whether it be the multi-layered successional planting that we do where the where the bulbs come up and then followed by another set of bulbs uh, followed by a self-sower that opens its its flowers followed by the perennial that then takes over and goes on to to the autumn that sort of concentration of of nectar resources um, really helps those insects and widens the season and, and makes it a rich place. And, and this is what's so exciting, it really is, is, is that for many people who maybe have been in the landscape architecture industry or, or the urban ecology movement, that, you know, we have been talking for many years about green corridors. Wildlife doesn't care. Wildlife doesn't see a, a garden fence. It just sees the areas where it, it can um, be sustained. And, and it's fascinating to hear you as somebody in the countryside running Dixter, but being able to relate what you're finding there to actually the wider benefit wildlife can have in an urban environment. And it, it, it's so stimulating. Well, the important message is that wildlife doesn't need to be in a nature reserve or, or out in the countryside it can be brought into the the village the town the city and and come back out the other side as well it's just um and so we need to i think we need more ecologists more entomologists more bryologists all these people more scientists to look at this and and work alongside gardeners so we have the direction to do the right thing as well as create these extraordinary, amazing things, as well as have an area where we can sit out on our on our deck chair on our patio and enjoy the dahlias and and and, and so on. But wouldn't it be lovely to enjoy it and have a diversity of wildlife amongst that garden as well? It certainly would. 
Fergus Garrett, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Chris. Fergus Garrett speaking to me from Great Dixter, and you can read his article in the October edition of The Garden magazine. If you're not familiar with it, The Garden is a monthly magazine delivered to all members. If you're not a member of the RHS, it's easy to find out why you should be by visiting rhs.org.uk. It's fair to say that the weather has been occupying more than its fair share of the front page news this year, whether it's a beast from the east, scorching summers, torrential rain. All over the UK, gardeners, both amateur and professional, have certainly been struggling to deal with the extremes of the weather and look after such precious plants. Emma Allen is one of the garden managers at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey, and she's passionate about summer flowering trees. She's written a great piece about it, about her top performers. We spoke to her about her passion for these plants. Well, I love them because I think traditionally I thought of trees with blossom and flowers as being very much a spring thing. And uh, the more I went down my professional horticultural path, the more I realised there's actually a whole wealth of trees that flower in summer and some of them are absolutely covered in flowers and are just stunning so something like the Indian bean tree, Catalpa bignonioides, is just a phenomenal summer flowering tree, absolutely breathtaking and I can remember also seeing Lagostromia, the crepe myrtle at Board Hill was one of my first ones that I noticed and it's just, uh, just a, they're all very different, they're quite colourful and they're, they're full of flower and I, I think I traditionally just thought of things like apple blossom or cherries or magnolia and I hadn't really considered um, the wealth of trees that flower in summer. So we're currently in the Bowes Lion Rose Garden at Wisley and there's quite a few fl- summer flowering trees in here. We've got a, an amazing collection of Cornus Cusa uh, and this spectacular Cornus Cusa Varchinensis uh, in here and that has amazing, very showy, creamy bracts and that's early summer, June time. It gets loads of attention when that's in full swing. Um, we've also got the Catalpa bignonioides um, in here, so the uh, Indian bean tree. It's one of the largest trees in the garden. I think it's probably my personal favourite. And that has these huge panicles of, they almost remind me slightly of foxglove flowers, but they're a kind of whitish colour with this purpley orange throat and they smell really quite fragrant as well. Uh, and then we've also got um, the Corotaria paniculata up here, which is sometimes called the golden rain tree. And that's because it has these beautiful panicles of yellow flowers, which look like golden rain. It's a really beautiful thing. So most trees, it's better to plant in winter. A container ones you can really plant any time of year, but something berry has got to be planted in winter time when it's dormant, so it's not in active growth and it won't mind being transplanted and uprooted and the container ones can be planted any time of year but in a way winter's still the best because it's the less stress on the tree at that time make sure it's got a decent hole lots of space around the tree and make sure it's planted at the level where the root flare starts at the base of the tree if you plant it too low it will rot off if you plant it too high the roots will dry out and so it won't get a good enough start in life if you've got kind of claggy soil you can add some organic matter to it and the same if you've got really sandy soil you can add organic matter too and that will help boost it and then the other thing is in their first couple of years you've really got to monitor the watering because they will be developing that root system and um, uh, yes they won't quite have the anchorage and the roots there to to feed them and you can always give them a, a top dress of, of feed as well uh, during the summer just, just to keep them going. 
Things like the Lagostramia, the crepe myrtle that's by the lab, uh, the, the laboratory, has, um, has done really well and that's flowered its socks off and that is a tree that loves uh, to be baked. And the Albizia julibristan in the exotic garden, and we only moved that in there this year, but that has been knockout in its first year. But they, this, these are plants, you know, from hot climates, so they really enjoy this kind of being baked in summer. Emma Allen at Wisley. You can read about her selection of trees in the October issue, which not only includes sumptuous photographs of them, but also a really useful planting guide. Everyone's talking about plastics at the moment, and, and rightly so, and we're just as concerned as everybody else is. In the October issue, I update members about our search for finding an alternative to plastic wrapping, uh, which is what the magazine gets sent out in each month and I really hope that we'll be able to update people in a future podcast. Right, that's enough podcast time for me. I'll be back next month with another podcast from The Garden magazine. Music